Welcome to BC Polytalk. I'm Daniel Fontaine. And I'm Bill Thielman. Today on the show, we've got Ellis Ross, BC Liberal MLA for Skeena, critic for LNG, liquefied natural gas, and someone who has a lot to say about some of the biggest issues we have in our province today on Indigenous rights. No, I'm really looking forward to interviewing Ellis today. There are so many issues today. If you look at the newspaper, you, you read the paper, you're online, there's so many issues that I think Ellis can, uh, can comment on today. And in fact, uh, one of them was uh, a recent column that uh, Ian Mulgrew wrote from the Vancouver Sun, which was uh, quite astounding to me, some of the statistics around Aboriginal incarceration. So I'd like to talk to Alice about that and get his reaction to the fact that those numbers are going up instead of down, uh, given all the work we're doing on reconciliation and work with Aboriginal communities. That was quite shocking to me. Well, and there's two words which are both acronyms, LNG and UNDRIP. <laughs> uh, the liquefied natural gas, uh, coastal gasoline pipeline situation where we've got the hereditary chiefs of Wet'suwet'en Nation who are opposed and elected band councils in favor along the route. And also we've got the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which was passed by the BC legislature, unanimously passed by the mm. legislature, all parties voting in favor. And yet, I, you know, Ellis Ross raised a lot of questions in the legislature about what it meant, and I want to talk to him about that. Yeah, it'd be interesting to, to dig a little bit deeper because sometimes when you're in the legislature, you just see the votes. You don't necessarily know what's going behind that vote. So I'm pretty confident that Ellis is going to have something to say about UNDRIP, and uh, who knows what that will be. And he's come a long way to say it because he it's has. a long, long way from from his riding in Skeena all the way down to Vancouver and Victoria it takes uh, a day of travel. It's a long travel. And I'd like to, to talk to him a little bit about that whole experience. Uh, rural MLAs have it way more difficult than urban ones do. And I want to hear from him. Um, what does it take to get from his community to a place like Victoria on an average day? So that's definitely going to be on my... Yeah, massive amount of time. <laughs> we'll be right back with Alice Ross. BC Polytalk thanks Harbour Air for supporting this show. It's through sponsorship and viewer support that we get to produce this show. Ellis, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being on BC Polytalk today. Um, we have a lot of questions uh, for you today. There's a lot of topics to cover, so we're just going to jump right on into it. Um, I'm going to maybe start around, uh, we're about 18 months, we think, potentially away from a provincial election. Mm. I know you just had a caucus retreat, I think, up north uh, just uh, a while ago, like within the last week. Surely there must have been some discussion within your caucus, and I know you can't reveal everything that was talked about, but uh, to look at expanding uh, the BC Liberal presence in urban areas and maybe making your caucus a bit more diverse, what are some of the kind of strategies that you guys are looking at to, uh, as you head into the next election to expand the, the, the base of the BC Liberal Party in BC? Well, we've already got an expanded base. Uh, actually, the BC Liberals actually won the last election, but we didn't win the majority if you combined the NDP and the Green Party. So we've already got that. Uh, the, I think the BC Liberals realized that we could have done more in some of the swing ridings. We could have done more in rides that we already had. Uh, and of course, uh, we, we think that we can do better in urban ridings. And there, there's some issues popping up that can actually uh, open that door for us as well. Mm -hmm. So how do you do that? How do you translate? Because I keep hearing this in the BC Liberals that they're going to try to appeal to urban voters. But so far, at least what we've seen, uh, it, it, there's been seems like more appeal to issues that are based in rural British Columbia than in, in urban British Columbia. And one of the things we've talked about on this show is the divide between urban BC and rural BC in terms of an understanding of the importance of, uh, of uh, resources and the resource communities across BC. How do you actually appeal and, and, and get more people to vote for you in urban areas when you seem to be focused a lot more on rural issues? Well, I, I can tell you what I think, like, like from my perspective, uh, there, there is a divide. The urban, the urban population doesn't understand how tough it is for us on rural areas. We got different affordability issues. We got different issues trying to tackle, especially uh, the emerging population regarding Aboriginals. 
But on the flip side of that, uh, I really truly believe that the urban population should understand what, uh, sorry, the rural population is, is trying to understand what the urban population is going through. I never really thought about this until a few years ago when everybody's complaining about the Massey Tunnel. And I just thought, eh, who cares? Then I had to go drive through that. <laughs> and I made a Facebook video and I, and I was getting ready to throw my phone out the window. Right. And there's, there's some other stuff that, uh, you know, that uh, we, we could actually learn from each other. Affordability, of course, is an issue, but it's really hard to accomplish whether you're talking about rural or urban. And I think, I think it needs to be understanding on both sides. Well, uh, Alice, one of the really big issues, obviously, is a rural issue, but it affects all of us in British Columbia. That's the coastal gas link question. You're the critic uh, for LNG within the Liberal Caucus. You've been pretty outspoken in your former role as chief of the Heisland Nation as well, and you're very much in favor of development. How do you see a way forward between the issue of the hereditary chiefs uh, in the Wet'suwet'en and the elected councils along the route and the government and industry position um, we've seen a lot of discussion about it, but nobody seems to have a clear solution beyond dialogue. But I don't know how you get through a dialogue when one side doesn't agree with the other. Yeah, you know, the, the politics around the, the LNG has been going on for at least 10 years. And my solution, uh, number one, get the politics out of it and get all the outside influence out of it. Uh, really what you're talking about at the community level is representation. That's what you're talking about. I mean, that community is struggling with that. And right now, there doesn't seem to be a way or a vehicle for that community to answer who represents them. And there's a lot of people talking about rights and title that don't understand rights and title case law. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's how, uh, you know, my band became so successful is because we researched case law. I'll give you an example. Uh, there's politicians out there talking about who represents case law in certain communities. Well, it's actually the community that actually holds rights and title. It's a collective right. Mm-hmm. I don't, as an Aboriginal myself, I don't have rights and title. Me and a bunch of my friends, you know, get together. We don't have rights and title. It's actually held on behalf of the community. So it only stands to reason if you're going to talk about uh, the representation of rights and title, you got to talk about who represents the community. And that's going to have to be done. If, if everybody wants that answered, you're going to have to answer that 203 times in BC because there's 203 bands in BC. Mm-hmm. I've lost count. <clears throat> so what do you think should happen or will happen? Well, I think the community, if push really comes to shove where the community is actually forced to answer it, they're going to have to either have a referendum or they're going to have to go to court. There, there's no government that's going to be willing to come in and say, I've got a process for you to determine who represents you. Uh, there, there's too many vagaries here. There, there's the Indian Act. There's uh, rights and title interests. There's mm-hmm. too much. Yeah. So it really comes down to the community and what they think. The membership, in fact, the membership is going to have to have a say. Yeah. So the the... Provincial government just recently appointed uh, Nathan Cullen, former NDP MLA, uh, MP, uh, to uh, act as, I guess, some kind of liaison. Do you have any thoughts on on Nathan's appointment? And perhaps you can comment on um, the fact that it, it just looks like uh, this is going to go. I mean, I, with all due respect to Nathan, I think that this is going to be perhaps by some time. But I just don't see how the hereditary chiefs are going to have a meeting with Nathan and somehow they're going to agree to this pipeline. So we're going to be back exactly where we were after these discussions. Any thoughts on Nathan's appointment? You know, uh, it, it goes back to politics that were played out by the last 10 years. Uh, I, I've tried to get uh, uh, provincial and federal leaders to come to my territory and say, you know, I know that you didn't oppose, uh, I know you opposed Rupert LNG for certain reasons, for environmental reasons, Lalo Island, but come to my community and support it because we're not Lalo Island. And I couldn't really get anybody to come in and back me up except for the BC Liberals 
uh, under Chrissy Clark and Mary Polak, Rich Coleman, John Rusted. So it's going to be really tough for me, especially when you think about the entrenched positions that are being taken right now. The Director of Chiefs have said a number of times there's absolutely no way this pipeline is going to get built. And Jordan Horgan, Premier John Horgan, just got through saying we have to respect the rule of law. And for the most part, it's going to be, okay, where's that middle ground? I don't see the middle ground. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So does that mean Supreme Court of Canada again? I mean, it seems like we resolve a lot of our problems, uh, not just with First Nations, but with teachers versus the government went all the way to Supreme Court of Canada. It seems a, a BC thing, but it, it has to be very unproductive unless you're a lawyer. Yeah. Well, of course. And, and you know, if you go to court, you got to decide, okay, what question am I taking to the court? Mm -hmm. if, I'm, if I'm taking the court the idea that I wasn't consulted and accommodated, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of interveners, including elected chief and councils, that are going to say, wait a minute, I'm there. There'll be CGL that will show the complete record of everything you tried to do to consult mm -hmm. and accommodate. I mean, it, there's a number of accommodations that were done in my band that weren't just money. And that, that's what people seem to forget. Accommodation just isn't money, jobs, training. In certain cases, uh, you know, we don't like that ditch being there because that's where we used to do our, some of our spiritual practices. And so the company says, okay, we'll put the ditch over there. How's that? That's a great accommodation. Thank you. So rights and title is not a very simple topic to come across. So if you're going to go to court, uh, there's got to be decisions made on what you're going to court on. And representation will probably be one of those questions. Yeah. Jody Wilson-Raybould, the former Attorney General and former First Nations leader, wrote an article a few days ago in the Globe and Mail, and she talked about some of the issues also that you've raised uh, and the, the collective rights, etc. But she was the Attorney General, and she didn't have a solution uh, in this article or, or while she was in office. It seems to me that inevitably we have to resolve the issue, and yet we don't really have a roadmap to get there. Well, you know, the thing about it is I think that uh, these politicians have actually fiddled with the roadmap. Um, and I, I understand why. But if, if you really uh, research rights and title case law, and then right from its beginning, Section 35 of the Constitution, and then all the defining court cases that came underneath that, that further defined it, you basically got a good roadmap for government, industry, and First Nations. For some reason, it's been ignored for the last two years. And so now we're throwing out words like UNDRIP and we're talking about all sorts of different things, but very few people have said, why don't we go back to the original roadmap? It actually achieved peace in the forest through the forest and range agreements for the last mm -hmm. 12 years in BC. It actually achieved LNG. It achieved uh, mining agreements between First Nations and industry. It achieved so many things. Why did we throw that all away? And I, I can't figure this out and I, I just hope somebody comes to their senses, even uh, Jody Wilson. When she became Attorney General, initially she went to the AFN and told them, look, we can't legislate UNDRIP. Later on, they, they went back, they flip-flopped an ad and said, well, we're going to do this and this and this. Uh, I truly believe politics got involved with it. And I don't, I, I understand politics. It's a necessary evil. But I don't appreciate politics when you're talking about some of the most disadvantaged people in Canada. Mm -hmm. I don't appreciate that. I don't. Really keep the politics we have met and stick to the roadmap that was developed over the last 40 years. So, also, I'm going to uh, just switch gears a little bit and just talk about um, a subject that came up uh, in the Vancouver Sun. Ian Mulgrew wrote uh, a very, um, uh, for me as a, as a Métis, uh, it was very disturbing to read some of the statistics he talked about Aboriginal incarceration. <laughs> and I'm going to read out these statistics because I think it's important for our listeners and for those watching to, to actually put this into context. It says here that 73% of the men and 80% of the women have the criteria for qualifying with, for a current mental disorder who are incarcerated. 29% require follow-up with mental health services. 25% have a cognitive de deficit. 
23% have FASD, fetal alcohol syndrome. But then when it comes to Indigenous peoples, they said they constitute less than 5% of the population, yet they now account for one in three men in jail and more than four in 10 incarcerated women. And, and I'm going to go right to British Columbia. He's got some other stats which are just shocking. But he says in British Columbia, compared to 2007-8, admissions of Aboriginal males increased the most in BC, 83% from 3,932 to 7,181. And that is with having somebody like Jody Wilson-Raybo as um, a kind of our chief law officer in the country. What do you feel when you hear these kind of statistics um, as somebody who is from within the Aboriginal community? Um, how do you react to that? Uh, I react with despair, disgust, um, animosity, anger, uh, because th there's a solution, and it's not going to come from government. Um, it's it's not going to come from a, a one specific source. And even if you look at some of the reports per, by Aboriginal organizations, and you talk about these statistics and all these social ills, there's always a section that talks about uh, a job, you know, being a biggest part of the cure, and that's absent in many Aboriginal communities across Canada, especially in BC. And it's uh, the last one I looked at was the the Inuit and Aboriginal report, and it was it just seemed so obvious to me because I just read that report last year, and yet I've been thinking the same thing for the last ten years because I saw it in action. And by the way, when it comes to that kind of statistic, uh, about twenty years ago, by some unknown reason, I always kept out of that statistic. Somebody out there likes me, but that should have been me on Hastings. That should have been me in prison. That should have been me going to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, for some reason, I was kind of steered through life getting away from that kind of stuff because I was born and raised on reserve. Uh, I suffered the alcohol abuse. I, I did all that. I'm uh, not going to mention any crimes that I got away with, but uh, <laughs> this is standard. Mm -hmm. And so when, when all these Aboriginal leaders and all these politicians get up and they talk about this stuff, okay, why don't we talk about a real solution with no politics involved, no rhetoric like I've, I, for years, listened to this, uh, uh, the leaders go, it's high time that government took us seriously. And everybody applauds. And yet nothing happens. We, we've, I've gone through 30 years listening to this, listening to all these new announcements about new Aboriginal programs, new proclamations, and new relationships. And then when I go home, I see nothing's happened, nothing's changed. Mm -hmm. The only way change is going to come if Aboriginal leaders are brave enough to do something different for themselves and stop relying on government announcements and programs and start doing something for your own people. Start doing something that gets your community away from this so that maybe 60%, 70%, 80% of your, your population has got a job. And I hate to say it, but, you know, when, when you get a job, especially as a male, I'm not going to talk for the females, but as a male, I mean, it's just human nature that a male wants to look after your family. And once you start doing that, there's other values that start to come around. Okay. This is also anybody, yeah. really. Yeah, no, I, was, yeah, no I, I agree with you completely. Um, I guess you've been an example for, for Indigenous people, for First Nations, for, for bands, and, and uh, in creating jobs in, in the Heisler region. We've seen uh, Chief Clarence Louis is another one. There are other examples. So in some, in some places, there has been success in creating jobs and creating uh, certainly Clarence Lewis had great success with wineries and all sorts of things going on in the Okanagan. Um, what's the secret to that success? Leadership. 
and courage to, to break out of the mold. Um, I, I could have guaranteed myself a job as chief counsel for the next 20 years if I just le- went along with the program and, you know, beat up on government, beat up on a white man, blame somebody else. I could have had a job for the rest of my life. Uh, but that wasn't, a, that wasn't my goal. Um, I re- seriously did not want my kids, my grandkids to grow up the way I did. Uh, I didn't want that at all. I mean, so courage meaning you got to take a different approach. You got to work with people that uh, normally you used to berate. And that, that, that's kind of a lonely job because nobody wants to break out of that, 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 that whole mindset. Nobody wants, you know, it works. You know, blaming somebody else and, you know, they're the oppressors and, oh, the bad Indian act. It works. It, it gives you votes. It gets publicity. But it doesn't do anything for your membership, I can guarantee you. Mm-hmm. And so I really think it comes down to leadership, courageous leadership. So how do you take your experience as, as an Aboriginal person to a place like the legislature? I know there's, I think, a handful of MLAs that are Aboriginal, so there's not like there's a, a critical mass there. How do you take your experience to the legislature and be able to to affect that change and to actually, or is that where you think you're talking more about uh, on reserve, or are you talking more about the change happening in in places like Victoria? Uh, both, really. Um, you know, I, I was kind of shocked that uh, not only with uh, the legislature, but my own colleagues uh, didn't really understand the nature of Aboriginal title, didn't understand the nature of uh, uh, the Indian Act, didn't understand the nature of. BC treaty negotiations, which is kind of related to, to rights and title, I was shocked. And so every uh, time a native issue has come up in the legislature where we're getting up to debate it, uh, I've, I've made many speeches on it in relation to, say, a bill or some type of talking point, and I've gotten absolutely no feedback. So, so nobody's debated me on, on some of the stuff I've said. Nobody's actually, uh, you know, contradicted me. Are they afraid to debate you because you know more about it, do you think? or I don't, I don't know, you know, because, you know, there, there's some people in legislature that, that uh, claim ancestry, which is fine. But the living experience of it all, mm-hmm. being born and raised in reserve, uh, being on council, uh, being in community organizations and seeing, you know, the, the, the social ills and your welfare list and, you know, and, and learning from the inside out about Aboriginal and title, learning about BC treaty negotiations, learning about all this, learning about the Indian Act, it gives you a different perspective. I mean, it's, you know, it's like a, you know, a, a frog in a boiling pot of water. You're in it. You don't know that you're boiling. But as soon as you get out of it, after all the experience, you look back and it's said, man, what a load of garbage. It doesn't even mean anything. Yeah. I mean, we need a new way. And, and this is the way. We, this is the way we got to go. So it's, uh, mm. I, I think that's why I don't get pushback from anybody. Yeah. Well, kind of following on that, uh, Frank Calder was first the first elected Indigenous person in Canada, I think, in the BC legislature in 1949 yeah. uh, from the Niska Nation. Uh, we've had uh, Larry Guno, we have uh, Melanie Mark and Adam Olson and yourself now. Um, is there some commonality that you can see and some, some aspirations that Indigenous legislators have that others don't have? Um, I'm not sure about uh, the, the Adam Olson's perspective, but I can see Melanie Mark's value in terms of growing up in an urban setting. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm pretty sure she's got a, a background in social work. Mm-hmm. Um, I, she, she probably has a better idea of what it's like to be an urban Indian. Uh, I've got the perspective of uh, the, the Aboriginal living on reserve and off reserve to a certain extent. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it comes back to the idea of what it means to be an Aboriginal in Canada. I've, in my reserve, I've got 800 people living on reserve. But as chief counselor, under the Indian Act, 
I get funding just to look after the 800 people. Even though my band membership is 1,900, that means there's probably 1,200 people living off reserve in Vancouver, Prince Rupert Terrace. So my band, one of the, the objectives for my band was saying, okay, we need additional pots of money so we can look after our Aboriginal people living off reserve. We got to develop programs for them. We got to help them with the cost of living. And that's what engaging with economic development and rights of title afforded us. So there, there are different perspectives that we can bring to the legislature for that. So you're obviously sitting within the BC Liberal caucus. You made a decision to run with the BC Liberals. So how do you see, what's the difference between the BC? Why did you not sit as a, as a new Democrat versus a BC Liberal? What Or a Green. Or a Green, exactly. <laughs> you, have, you have choice, you have three choices. I mean, you've obviously uh, formed some connection and there was a reason why you did that. And and uh, uh, assuming that perhaps the government changes, you're perhaps gonna be in government, you're gonna have that opportunity to influence. What's the difference then in your mind between uh, a BC Liberal government and, and an NDP when it comes to things like resource extraction, uh, rural economic development, or things like Aboriginal rights? So in 2011, 2010, sorry, my band made a conscious decision to change our approach to government. And we brought in a, a person to, to kind of teach about what government was. And, and up to then, I was, I was getting mixed signals from Victoria. Yeah, on, and on one hand, I'd bring in people like Mary, Mary Pollock was the first one to come visit our territory and, and explore LNG. Took her down channel, showed her the sites, show her why we didn't want to build in a certain area, come build over here. And so, you know, it started off a love-hate relationship with the BC Liberal government. And one day we'd be fighting over a permit or a referral. Sometimes I'd win, sometimes they'd win. But I, the guy I liked to beat up most was John Rustad, <laughs> right? Because he was a indigenous minister. But then slowly we started to realize, hey, we got the same mandates here. We got the same objectives. So I started questioning then why do you guys keep sending out mixed signals from Victoria? Then I realized, actually, there's two parties in Victoria. There's the NDP and there's the BC Liberals. So some of the language I saw coming out of Victoria was actually come from the NDP opposing LNG, uh, talking about uh, Aboriginal issues that, that didn't kind of quite align with what I was thinking. And so I started to learn more and more about Victoria. So by the time, um, by the time uh, LNG Canada said no, we're not gonna make our final investment decision. We're gonna stall. Uh, I got so depressed. I got so down and out. I was just, what am I gonna do? So it, it took a week, but previous to that, uh, the federal conservatives were asking me to run. BC liberals were always asking me to run. And so that week I decided, okay, I gotta do something else. I've, I've done enough here. My band's on a good road. They're self-sufficient. They're bringing in money. They got land. I gotta do something different to get LNG across the board. And so I chose uh, the party that was there from day one that supported LNG. Hmm. Do you uh, find it ironic now that it's the NDP that's bringing in <laughs> LNG? <laughs> I'm not second guessing your no, decision. No, no, really. no, no, no. In, in fact, you know, it, it caused a lot of uh, concern about how the parties were gonna vote. Mm. And, you know, internally, what, did the NDP 100% support LNG? Were the Greens gonna support LNG? Even in our own party. I mean, even I started to think about it even though 100%, but I made it clear to my party, you know, I can't, I can't vote against this, you know? So we had a big debate, we talked about it. And at the end, the BC Liberals uh, decided, no, it's good for BC, you know, we'll question it, we'll debate it, we'll, we'll investigate it thoroughly, but this is what the goal was all along, we gotta go along with it. So, but it was, uh, it's part of our job to be, uh, to de debate every single issue. Mm -hmm. 
Well, that's one of the other ones, uh, questions I wanted to ask. You mentioned it in passing, UNDRIP, the uh, United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Uh, you voted for it, your caucus voted for it, and the NDP and the Greens voted for it. So it was unanimous in the legislature, but also on second reading, uh, some of your colleagues absented themselves because of concerns. You also raised a number of questions about the meaning, particularly whether there was an Indigenous veto and things. Could you describe uh, some of the, the, the issues that you see within general politics? Because uh, in a way, it couldn't become an election issue because all parties supported it, unless we had a new party, a BC Conservative or some other party took it on. But what's the dynamic there for you in BC politics? You know, when I, when I, so I first came across UNDRIP about 10 years ago. And uh, when I was talking about with my people, my council, I said, look, guys, I don't even know what this is. And we don't need it. We've already got Section 35 of the Constitution. We've got all this case law that actually works in our favor if we do it right. So we don't need it. So don't bother with it. Let's stick to our plan. It's a good plan. We've developed it over the last 10, 12 years. And so it never really became an issue for me. So when I came to the legislature, it came up again first in Ottawa, failed, and it comes to BC. So I had no choice but to engage with this. So I read uh, the Canada's bill, C-262, because I knew the BC NDP were going to use that as a template. And we went back and we started talking about the BC Liberals. I, I didn't agree with it. I still don't agree with it. But I didn't want the BC Liberals painted as racists because this is politics. That's all it is. But, and, and, but I did want uh, to, to be investigated thoroughly. Question everything based on Section 35 of the Constitution. Question everything based on the case law. Uh, you name it. Question everything to determine what is the government thinking. And so at the end of the day, why I voted for it was because I saw an empty bill. It didn't mean anything. If anything, what I saw, it's a declaration kind of like what Section 35 of the Constitution was. They made this big splash. Section 35, we now recognize Aboriginal title. Everybody celebrated. Well, it actually didn't mean anything. Then we spent 40 years defining it, going to court with Miccosuke Cree, Gladstone, Delgamu, Haida, all these court cases that defined it. And now I find we're right back to square one. You've got this bill with no definition. How are we going to define it? And what my, my biggest fear was, number one, you're going to create political uncertainty within the communities. Number two, instead of moving forward with a progressive relationship with industry and government, you're going to have to define this by going to the courts and reestablish all those case law principles that have already been established. So I thought it was political in nature, and, it, and it, I think it'll be years before we figure out exactly what it means in the context of legislation. So, Alice, um, a lot of politicians who work in Victoria uh, come from the metro area. Their uh, commute consists of jumping on a harbor <laughs> air or... Uh, yeah. And uh, they're one of our sponsors, by the way. So <laughs> I happen to say Harbor Air. Good old Harbor Air. Uh, good old Harbor Air. They didn't, they didn't uh, request that plug. But uh, so you're taking Harbor Air back and forth. So it, it's, it's a fairly easy commute, uh, 30 minutes. Tell our listeners and, and those watching today what it's like for someone like you to make it to and from Victoria, in particular in, in wintertime. Oh, it's, it's horrible. In fact, uh, to begin with, I hate traveling. Always did. Even as chief counsel, I hated traveling. Uh, but I could control it. I can't control it with uh, the job I got now. I have to be in Victoria. So I, what I got to do is I got to drive from my village, my reserve, and I got to drive an hour to get to the Terrace Airport, hour and a half if conditions are what they are today with all the snow. And usually I get on that plane, and then it takes me about an hour and 40 minutes to get to Vancouver. 
And then if I make it on time, I make my connector. If I don't make it in time, I got to find a hotel. And then I got to explain to the whip why I can't make it into Victoria that night. And then uh, if I make it in the next morning, I, t I take a plane over to Victoria. Then I got to find a ride from uh, the, the airport uh, into, into Victoria itself, which is either a cab or a rental car. It's actually worse going back than it is going down. Because Victoria, you get an inch of snow there, the whole <laughs> town goes crazy, right? Cars going Here off too. the road, <laughs> de-icing. Yeah. You know, last winter, we, we all got stuck in Victoria Airport. And my flight was the one miracle flight that was going to get out. And all my colleagues are sitting in the waiting area. So as a parting shot, when I was walking out the door, I turned around and said, so long, suckers. <laughs> and I walked out, got in the plane. I sat in the tarmac oh, for two hours. Oh, then, when I, then when I landed in Vancouver, I sat on the tarmac for an hour and oh. I missed my click. Connecting flight to go home. Yeah. So don't be too cocky. Is my lesson. <laughs> no, and I, you know, absolutely not. And I think that you know a lot of people don't realize that you know rural, uh, you know MLAs have to go through a heck of a lot to get to and from the legislature. And if you're in the metro area, it's so easy to do. But uh, appreciate all the work and effort that uh, you put in every week. And really appreciate you coming here on the show today. Yeah, thank, thank you, you very much. It was really entertaining and, and informative. More importantly, <laughs> yeah. uh, we had a good laugh. But uh, the, the the information that you're talking about is things that I think a lot of our viewers and listeners don't really understand the background too. So we want to thank you for, for bringing that to us. Thanks thank you so very much, guys. Thanks thank for you. BC Polytalk thanks Harbour Air for supporting this show. It's through sponsorship and viewer support that we get to produce this show. And welcome back to BC Polytalk. Daniel, I thought that was absolutely fascinating. So many big issues. Ellis Ross, obviously a very articulate spokesperson. Mm -hmm. What was your biggest takeaway? Well, I agree with you. He's very well spoken. And I think what uh, I took away from that is uh, here's a man who's very passionate about uh, the Aboriginal community, very passionate about resource development and someone who I think brings uh, a level of expertise. And as he said, a personal experience of having lived on reserve. He's not just reading this in books. He talked very openly about his own issues with alcohol and those types of things. He's bringing those real life experiences into the legislature. And I can only think that, you know, when you're sitting in a caucus with somebody like Ellis, that um, you're able to benefit from that knowledge. So that was my big takeaway that the BC Liberal Caucus really does benefit by having someone like Ellis with that experience and that voice uh, within the caucus. Yeah, and it's interesting as well because he really gave a view that we don't often or always hear uh, amongst the non-Indigenous community, and that's that uh, if you want to help Indigenous people, they have to make some of those moves and break out of the cycle of, uh, as he mentioned, of, of poverty and dependence on government. And he's one of the leaders, along with others uh, in BC who have done that, who've created businesses, who have expanded and created jobs, which mm -hmm. he thinks is the most important thing for raising up his community. I really enjoyed the the kind of comment you made about uh, the fact that it was the NDP implementing <laughs> LNG and kind of him, him yeah. laughing about that. I think it's not lost on him the fact that you know this has been going on a long time and and uh, I was really uh, interested to hear what motivated him to run for politics and the fact that that uh, you know LNG was a big thing for him and that that was what kind of got him in so yeah and it, and it kind of shows and, and I think what we tried to do with this show is uh, encourage our guests who are partisan to be somewhat nonpartisan. And mm -hmm. I think it was interesting because he was talking about the differences between the two parties, and yet there's this irony of one party didn't succeed that was very uh, in favor of uh, LNG1, which mm -hmm. had some reservations, is actually the one bringing it to fruition. So uh, that's BC politics for you. Yeah, and, and uh, just my final takeaway was around, you know, his comment around uh, his vote for UNDRIP and how mm -hmm. not voting for it would have meant something that 
uh, he didn't want to have in terms of potentially the party being deemed or, or labeled as racist. So yeah. I think he understands the politics of that. He clearly does. And I think that he wants us to go beyond that and not have UNDRIP be something that uh, would end up being a collision during the election. And perhaps it still will be. I don't know. We'll, time will tell. Well, and I think having one of the three Indigenous MLAs in the BC legislature say it's kind of an empty bill. It's not that much to it. Yeah. Uh, I was I was kind of shocked by that, I was to be take, honest. And, yeah. and I think uh, we've got a long way to go. And remember, you can find everything at our website, bcpolytalk.ca. You can also chase us down on Spotify and iTunes for podcasts. You can find us on Vimeo. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook and find links there. You can go to YouTube and see the show. Thanks so much for tuning in to BC Polytalk. I'm Daniel Fontaine. I'm Bill Tillman.